0: Welcome to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Legendary Gear, the call, game call company that is legend by design. You can check them out at legendarygearusa.com. That's legendarygearusa.com. I'm George Lynch. I'll be your host and the designer with uh, Legendary Gear. The model around here, if it's not good enough for George's lanyard, it's definitely not good enough for yours. Folks, I'm very proud in this week's episode. We've been blessed with this podcast to have some great guests on, some very uh, funny, some educational, but uh, a lot of them are all good friends and, and partnerships that we've we've made through the years and doing what we love to do the most, and that's hunting. The two guests that we have to, on this week's podcast, I'm very blessed to, to have them part of this. They've been good friends, and uh, they are definitely at the top of their field, It uh, and I consider, you know, I'm pretty picky and been in this game for a long time, have a extensive manufacturing background, and uh, it's one of the things I've totally been impressed of what they've done and, and pulled it off. And, um, you know, yeah. quality is, is always, they still seem to knock it out of the park. And and uh, this week's guests, I got Dave Smith and Brad Cochran. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Hey, George.
1: Oh, thank you, Boy, that was quite a quite an introduction, man. and to the studio audience, please, please be
0: seated. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I really do. We appreciate you having on here. And basically, I'd like to just start this out. We always like to start our podcast with our guests. And I guess each one of Dave, you go first. Just give a your background and and uh, your kind of um, your history and and uh, background, and, and tell us all about that.
1: Okay, all right. Well do. well, mine's pretty boring, so I'll try to. I'm. I'll, I'll, I won't drag it on too long, but uh, yeah, thanks for that introduction, and and I uh, really appreciate that. And uh, um, yeah, I was thinking the first thing I was thinking of, I need to talk to Brad and say, wow, this. You know, we need to be more professional. Like that was really that was really professional, and that was like you put put Brad and I to shame. So that was that was really great. But um, so my my background is is pretty simple, I guess. I just um. I've been an industrial sculptor for most of my adult life. Um, and I started out doing um, taxidermy mannequins hmm. uh, for for supply supply companies, research mannequins. And actually there's a tie in there because you, you just got your, your big awesome white tail back from Chet Brown and Chet Brown is actually one of the one of the big contributors to research mannequins and he's super well liked and well respected and he's just a great guy and um, so that was kind of a cool tie-in, but uh, and then from there I went to footwear. I worked for Nike and Fila, and I did uh, clay sculptures of shoes as part of the design process. And I did that for ten years. I did uh, seven years at Nike and three years at Fila. And you know, I was just really loving goose hunting, getting interested in goose hunting, and doing more more goose hunting. And and it was just kind of killing me that. But I was working on these sculptures, and I felt like I had this ability to to like you know reproduce things or produce things in in clay. but they weren't tied um, at that point in footwear they weren't tied to you know the things that I, that I really love, which is you know anything outdoors and animals and nature and hunting and fishing and trapping and all that kind of stuff. So um, you know I missed that from research mannequins, but you know working at Nike and Fellow, was more social and there's, you know, better money and and all that stuff. But I, um, I just decided that I wanted to get back into doing that sort of thing. Um, and the, the obvious answer was to make, to to make a goose decoy because goose hunting was just getting better and better and better here in the Valley. And, and, uh, the, the the, the quality of decoys that were available at the time wasn't very good. Mostly because people just felt like uh, when it wasn't really needed. It wouldn't make a difference. And I was sure that it would. And uh, so, you know, I just did a, I did a sculpture of, of what was really like a Taverners Canada Goose, which is like a lesser, like a, a, like a compact lesser, a, a fuller right. puppy round lesser. There's the cool bird. And, uh, and I just made it just for, you know, me and myself and my friends like Brad. And we just decided that we just, you know, we would just hunt with this decoy ourselves, but it uh, it cost a lot of money to make, you know, to make the, the sculptures and the molds and then cast the parts and paint them. And, and then next thing you know, we're, you know, we're guiding, Brad and I are guiding together and we're using this decoy. And we're, we were actually doing really, really, really good. Like, uh, you know, just like success wise, we were, we were having success that was just un, unheard of, you know. And and, uh, and I guess that was just that's blatant bragging, but it's just it's true. We were just doing really really good. Brad had, had made some developments in the call call department. Brad was the first person ever to make like a true like peeping call, like which is uh, the sound that our that our tacklers make. And now you know that you can buy lots of different brands of those and stuff and a lot of people have emulated that um so between between you know the the calls could you go through
0: that that again You called that a peeping call
1: well yeah just um the it was like you know like when a when a cackler, a true cackler, um makes a you know a honk it's it's barely a two-note honk it really is it's like a single it's almost like a single, the, the low and high, um, that, that a Canada goose normally makes, they're combined together so tightly with a cackler that it really comes out as like a single peep. And it's so high pitched, like it would just blow most people's minds. Any, anyone from, you know, like East of Montana would be blown away at how, at how, really how high pitched these cacklers are. And, um, so, so Brad was the first to really make, and he, you know, I want I want to hear his his version of it too. Um, but I know that he's modest enough to where he's probably not going to go too in depth to it or take too much credit. But I know for a fact because you know, we were hunting together at that time like crazy, and he was the first to really to really make a call that that, that made that that made that sound. And uh, and so it was dead. That was deadly. And then we had you know Ron Latchak from from Oregon here. He he was making the final approach blinds. and so we had all these these this technology and these cool things that were helping us like crazy, and and we were guiding. And I remember when we were guiding at one at one time we were printing a brochure for our guiding, and we had we'd had kind of figured out at the end of the season uh, we were advertising, and we realized that we had we had limited out on every single hunt that we had taken with clients except for two hunts, and on those two hunts we still killed. I think it was 56 geese uh, on those two hunts. So we had been doing really, really good, and and there was a lot of demand and stuff uh, for our guiding. But also what happened was the the demand for our decoys just blew up like crazy. And and then gas prices started getting really high, um, and more people were getting – they would go hunting with us and figure out where we're hunting, and then they'd go and lease the property that that we had just hunted on. oh yeah and that yeah that just got tougher and tougher and tougher so then so then brad and i kind of like kind of thought well what should we do maybe we should we we still we knew we wanted to stay in partnership and you know we've been friends for a long time and partners for a long long time and we just knew that we just wanted to continue with that whatever it is where we're going to do and uh and we just decided, you know, it just needed to be something related to hunting. So it's like, all right, let's let's put our heads together and our, our efforts together, and and uh, and just start making decoys. And you know, I was I've been sort of the artistic side of it, and then Brad is sort of the brains of it. Um, he's uh, uh, you know really good with with you know management and fi- you know finance and and uh, accounting and you know all that all that kind of stuff that the art brain people are terrible at. So that's basically the, that's basically the, the the long and short of it right there.
0: What about you, Brad? Oh boy. I,
2: I would say, I guess I would describe myself George as a guy who, since the age of five has had um, just a, incredibly high drive when it comes to hunting and um i I fell in love with waterfowl hunting at the age of five that's all i really ever wanted to do i always really struggled in school to to focus to stay focused i was always looking out the window um you know watching the geese fly by and um i was just a a kid who was really, really lucky uh to meet the right guy at the right time. And so back in college, um, I was attending Oregon State University. I was fortunate enough to meet Dave and Dave uh quickly saw my interest in goose hunting and was able to was kind enough to recommend me to uh refer me to um Mike Franklin, who at that time owned Pacific Wings in eastern Washington. And Dave was already guiding there, and he referred me to, to Mike. And Mike brought me on board, and so Dave and I guided there together for a couple years. But um, it was a long haul. It was about a five-hour drive over there. And, you know, after a while, that starts to wear on you and we were having a lot of fun over there but at the same time we saw an opportunity here locally in the valley where we both live and so we we capitalized on that um and we started our own guide service and so we did we did that for a couple years successfully as Dave had mentioned um but for you know numerous reasons we decided that So for one, there just wasn't really much, uh, you know, longevity and guiding and, um, you know, goose hunting was becoming more and more popular here in the Northwest. And, you know, we could see that, you know, David really created something special with his, um, with his decoy, his taverners decoy, which he had already designed. By the time we met, he had four different poses, and that's what we hunted over um, those years we guided together. And the first time I saw the decoys, I was like, my God, this is what I've, I've been looking for, you know, because these geese here in the valley where we hunt, the cacklers, um, they are so different than the decoys that were available at the time. They didn't respond well to silhouette decoys. We've been using those for many, many years because, you know, cacklers they're very similar to snow geese in that they're um, they a very gregarious bird. You know, they feed in really, really large blocks, and they fly in large blocks, and they fly high, and they circle. Um, and silhouettes just were not effective. You know, we would have decent success early in the season, um, but... You know, we we have a five month long season on tacklers here, and by the end of the season, the late season, um, it felt like we were getting blanked more days than we were actually getting any shooting at all. So, um, you know, then uh, at one point we finally realized that we we needed to. And I say we, I wasn't hunting the safe yet at this point. We mess, but um, I realized that. If, if we were going to successfully get these birds to decoy, we would need to make some changes. And so um, we tried small spreads of full bodies and very quickly discovered that the birds were, you know, all of a sudden working a lot closer and we were having success clear into our late season, you know, which goes all the way through March 10th. Um, but it still wasn't quite satisfied because... Yeah, I'm looking at these decoys, and Bigfoots were the most realistic decoy at the time. Um, and you know, they were they were a good looking decoy, but they weren't a great looking decoy. And when I put a cackler side by side with a Bigfoot decoy, the the difference is just drastic. You have this really large, you know, honker frame in a Bigfoot decoy with a light, you know, light breast color on it. Um, and it says all the dimensions of a honker, which is night and day from a cackler. You know, a cackler is about two to three pounds, and they're very dark. They have a stubby neck, stubby bill, um, and and just just overall, the the two geese are completely different looking. And so, um, you know, back to back to our hunting success over bigfoot it was still fairly limited um we we would get the birds to swing over the decoys but we we just couldn't we couldn't get them to finish and you know one thing that's worth noting in the um the region where we hunted the northwest permit goose zone is that you couldn't shoot until 8 a.m Back in the day, um, that's changed a little bit now. Now you can actually shoot at sunrise. Um, and so inevitably the geese would start flying well before shooting hours. And, and you know, we still had an issue with uh, geese. Just, you know, they would circle with decoys and then they would move on. Um, and oftentimes they'd pick another field and then it would be over. You know, they would just... By shooting time, once shooting time would roll around, the birds would all be, you know, it's in the field yeah. down the road, and um,
0: that'd be and tough.
2: So, yeah, it, it it was really tough. And so, uh, I kept thinking to myself, if we just had a more realistic decoy, it needs to be smaller and it needs to be more accurate, you know, color wise to match our geese. And so, long story short, I, I know I've been rambling now, but. But I met Dave and I saw his decoy, I was like, oh my God, that is it right there. It's a life-size decoy and it's it's the right color, it's the right proportions. Um, so I was really, really excited to get to hunt over them for the first time. But honestly, George, um, I knew that they would be effective, but I really had no idea just how effective. I mean, the first time I hunted with Dave, uh, we hunted with our friend Gary Miller and um, the first flock those came in, there must have been 500 of them, I think. And they didn't even circle, they just landed straight in the decoys. <laughs> uh, and this was before shooting time, so we, were, we just got to watch them and observe them. And not only did they land in the decoys, they stayed in the decoys. They fed in the decoys. I was absolutely blown away. Um, and I have, <laughs> I have a very, very obsessive mind. And, and uh, boy, I tell you, it was like, uh, I, I just... I
0: couldn't get over that. Uh, you know. I can remember and months and months and months. Yeah, but I can remember in some of your earlier video that I watched that uh, you guys would sit there in your blinds and these geese would land and you're sitting there going, why didn't they shoot? Well, you, you made it. You know, you couldn't shoot till a certain time. And uh, you know, I remember that the you're sitting there and you guys are talking and you're actually filming and the geese were st- stayed into the decoys. And that was pretty impressive
1: because then, you know, if, if we, if we only had, you know, three or five dozen decoys and then birds would start building up and building up and building up by the time shooting time got here, you know, all of a sudden we had, you know, two or three or four or 500, you know, live, live decoys. And that actually worked out pretty good. Um, And that, that's when, I mean, I think that's sort of what led us to, but maybe, maybe Brad kind of got, got it started before even that, but, sort of led us to the idea of like, all right, well, our choices are once you have 500 live birds on the ground, you can, you know, clap them out of there or, you know, do anything to scare them out of there. Um, we didn't really want to shoot. And we kind of thought, well, if we if we shoot at any birds, you know, it's like, well, maybe it should be something where you really make it count, like some some kind of really special bird. And and I think, you know, that's that kind of naturally led us to... All right. Well, on the, on the other ones that are coming in. It's shooting time now. Let's just look really carefully and try to spot spot one with a neck collar out of the air. And I think that's what what got us really really going on that. That that made for a super super fun time. But just backing up a little bit, um, in case anyone's wondering why we can't shoot till eight o'clock um, of the. Several subspecies of Canada geese that we have here in the valley. There's was, there's was one of them, the dusky Canada goose, that's that's protected and the numbers have been low. And the, um, the whole idea was to not shoot a dusky Canada goose. So um, they figured that by eight o'clock there would be uh, the lighting would be good enough to where you'd be able to see see pretty well to make sure that the, you weren't shooting a dusky Canada goose.
0: How I, I read that and I was sitting there to myself. How tough is that to identify a a, a dusky to a lesser? Uh, I mean, it, is it really a tough call sometimes? Is it something that you notice, you know, or a cackler? It is, what's the difference? And don't you guys have also a Lucian goose? We do have Lucian. Dave, do
2: you want to? answer the iad question or do you want me to
1: um well yeah i'll i mean basically the easiest the easiest thing is that the duskies are pretty darn dark they're a large dark bird but they also kind of acted differently and we sort of tried to develop methods between scouting and decoying and hunting and calling that didn't necessarily attract duskies to to Spread and um, we didn't have too much of a problem with that, even when we were guiding. But you know, there's there are birds that are kind of borderline. You, you get a small, a smaller dusky that's not super super dark. And at the same time, we had there was a group of lesser canadas from Anchorage area uh, that were fairly large and fairly dark. And sometimes it was hard to you know differentiate those. But for the most part. Like with clients and stuff, we were setting up on large flocks of cacklers and with some, you know, taverners mixed in, and they just acted different. They were a little faster and more hyper, and uh, whereas the duskies are a little more like like a honker for the, for the most part, where, you know, they're flying low in smaller flocks. They kind of sort of like to be by themselves and, and have a deeper voice and all that kind of stuff.
0: What made the dusky population... Um... To be so low that they are being protected.
1: <clears throat> so that that was that mostly comes down to an earthquake an earthquake that happened in Alaska, um, and it basically uh, lifted the plate that the uh, that the dusky Canada geese nested on, and so um, what the, what what all the geese in Alaska really need is they need to like they need intermittent ty- uh, tidal, and and islands to to nest on and so all of a sudden that that plate was lifted uh and uh and then that that allowed like a million predators foxes and bears and things like that to to access all the nests uh, of duskies and that just i mean just a, a few seasons of that and it's just you know really it, it didn't wipe them out, but it, the population got so low that we had no goose hunting in the valley for quite a long time. And then finally, finally, you could goose hunt if you took a test and passed a test that said that you could that you could positively identify them. And if you accidentally shot a, one dusky for the season, then you were you were you were done for the season. You weren't allowed to hunt any longer.
0: Wow. Yeah. I guess
1: and the population, it's, it's never been
2: very large um what was it they that peak numbers were like maybe 30,000 yeah yeah if I'm
0: not mistaken and it's all and, and that was all established through predation wasn't it I mean it's the same thing we're kind of facing with the turkeys here that when predators are out of control or predators having access they will um control our populations uh, that's basically what it is in a nutshell isn't it so when you I hear you guys yeah, talking yeah, about but, the valley what is the valley I mean, there's not a green giant or anybody sits in the middle of the valley, is there? <laughs> <laughs> ho ho ho! <laughs> uh,
2: when we talk about the valley, we're referring to the Willamette Valley.
0: You know, that's interesting. It's, yeah. uh, you know, when I think about this, I think you guys are the only one. I mean, we Canada goose hunt for a long time, and 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 I have, you know, we have several Canada calls. But one's basically for a deeper honker, a little higher pitch. One I can do, you know, slow and more methodical. And, and and the other ones is just, it's balls to the wall. But basically, you're still, to us, it's a Canada goose. And you guys, just with the different subspecies, unlike you were just talking before about the cacklers and peeping, I mean, it's you, uh, your ex- expansion of your vocabulary has just got to be so much greater... Than what basically the Midwest and even the East Coast guys what we face.
2: Well, what's interesting, and I don't think many people um, really can appreciate this if they if they haven't experienced it for themselves. But um, but here where we hunt, you, you really kind of have to be, um, I guess, for lack of a better uh, term, an expert in goose identification and you know before you can actually hunt you do need to pass a goose id test but also um, and that's just a very very small part it's really only an introduction to it but you have to you have to pass up shooting opportunities on a tremendous number of geese especially the guys that started doing this like back in when Dave and i started doing it which was when they very first opened up the season to goose hunting as soon as the cacklers started to arrive, and this would have been, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Um, George, you learn more from not shooting a geese than you will ever I believe that. possibly learn from, from shooting. I mean, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, it, we didn't really have a choice. It wasn't, wasn't because we wanted to sit here and bird watch. We, but we literally, when shooting time is 8 a.m., and you have geese, you know, leaving the refuges to feed, sometimes as early as six fifteen, six thirty, and they're landing in their decoys by the thousands. They're forced to sit there and watch them.
0: Absolutely. And it is
2: unbelievable what you can learn by not shooting.
0: You know, you bring up a great and, point. Um, back years, a few years back, and when I was uh, had the shop down in Michigan, we were southeast part of michigan and i was in my backyard i had two of the largest hunt clubs waterfowl clubs that were in the area and and of course we lived with ducks and geese almost year round and then behind that you know as crow flies i had lake erie so i would go out with my chessie and that's when we developed the dog cam, and we had the harness, and I was actually going out there, and more it was a it was a training period for my dog. And I, and we talked about this on the video that we did. You know, I've had my dog out there, and we'd set up in the spring, and and uh, of course you had, and it was a don't get me wrong, it was a different time. Birds aren't being shot there, and plus they're they're looking for mates, or they picked up a mate, and sure they're going to be a little easier to call. But it was great experience. Excuse me it was a great experience cuz you mentioned there you learn so much when you're not shooting and sometimes it's you know guys are when you're shooting a goose when they hit that 30 yards they haven't hit the ground yet there's you know when you're wanting geese to come in there's there's certain things that you know you're letting those first geese and you'll learn that you probably a lot of guys have never witnessed because they've never let them land and uh, so I would go out there and set up with just a few decoys and my dog and with the camera and then they had another camera set up and just would work geese. And the, the coolest thing is it was awesome training for my dog. Cause we'd have a camera on him, especially if we were in flooded corn and watching the birds and noticing that every time a bird would come in and he would f- focus on it, he, he'd be patting with his mouth open. And as soon as he focused on the bird, his mouth would shut right up. And the same thing, we, oh. we just learned so much of uh by letting him land and and you know that was i tell guys it was it was like taking live batting practice without without audience in the stage you know people in the crowd it was being you know plus it was it was live batting practice for my dog he doesn't know whether i'm shooting or not but what great experience of having him sit there and having birds land and you know teaching him that you know it's okay this does happen now and then and when it happens you don't go until i say go or you hear that gun go off so i i can really relate to that that comment
1: that's, that's something i think a lot of people just just don't really get an experience And it and uh, even even people in the valley here a lot of people they would say well the shooting time's at eight o'clock so i'm gonna get out at the field at seven fifteen and start start setting up decoys and stuff and um you know they they're they're just missing out missing out on a lot and then you know like sometimes flocks will come and <clears throat> and if you're just trying to work them you know you're not going to shoot you know you're willing to take all the all the risks that you need to because um, right you, you'll you'll find out like well should should you know would we have shot or should we have shot and what you know did they come back around or did they did they bug out and some of the some of the smaller flocks were a really really good uh, learning experience also and also some of the ones that wouldn't land you know were a, were a good learning experience
0: too hmm. yeah, i agree with that 100 percent. with um now you guys are making let's see let's see you have a giant honker you have or the, excuse me you have the giant you have a honker you have the snow the lesser a speck and then a cackler and then some of my new favorites you guys got out are the giant sleepers um is there what are the challenges of you know of trying to you know your standard in everyday? Is it is there challenges or you pretty much got everything figured out and everything smoothly or I mean just tell us how how do we go from I guess what I'm time trying. Do you have? What's that? How much time do I have? There you go. How much
2: time you got there,
0: buddy? I'll tell you what. Here'd be the great thing for our listeners is to to, to truly appreciate. Cause uh, I like what you said there. One's an artist, and the other one is good at the finances and everything. And that's kind of like my wife and I. I'm I'm the artist, and she's good at the the um, finances and and the business things. And you know, I guess you call it the beauty and the beast. I don't call her a beast, but you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: but
0: you know it, uh, let's go
2: from sleeping on the couch tonight yeah well
0: <laughs> couch that's an upbringing from the dog kennel <laughs> <laughs> the dog yeah, sleeps on the couch i'm in really the kennel <laughs> let's go let's, let's talk Indeed. about from the idea of the decoy um trying to decide on how do you use the number one decide on the actual pose and then the hours of studying, the photos, uh, I, 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 can't, I can't imagine going out there in the photos of live birds, you know, trying to get, cause I mean, you're realistic. It's just, you can't tell the difference between your your decoy and the live bird in, in the uh, spread. So let's just, from the time of the creation or the thought to the end process, what, what all is involved in that?
1: Take it away, Dave okay um well you know it depends on the it depends on the the species it depends on the animal but um i would say you know what what i what i try to do and and you know when when we say that brad is like the brains of the business side of it brad's also very artistic but but the main thing is this brad and and greg and mike scott a lot of the people that we work with all hunt like crazy and pay close attention and and uh and then we also have a whole artistic wing at the of really really good painters, um, and a lot of them hunt also. But you know, I um, so it's kind of a collaborative effort on on what what poses we're gonna do. But the main thing that that we're looking for is you know our the whole goal of our decoy is to make the most effective decoy. Like we we don't try to make the prettiest one. We don't we don't hire you know hire world class carvers or or try to you know anything like that um we just try to make a decoy that that will that will draw and hold animals longer than than anything else and um a lot of that a lot of that success of that really has to do with the 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 finish the the reflection or lack of reflection on our on our paint Um, that's a big part of it but still the colors and pose are pretty important and so i would say on poses a lot of it is just about um really relaxed or inviting poses and um and and once we figure out the poses then you know i just start like for a canada goose for example i'll go to any anywhere that i can where there's actually canada goose um of gates geese that i can get as close as possible to and in, in some cases like uh, you know it's the point where i can get above them um and take photographs and i just take a bazillion photographs and i'll look on the internet for photographs and then i just send them send them to costco and i'll just get a big old package of you know really really large enlargements and uh, and then it's kind of a fun it's kind of a fun job of going through all the photographs and Seeing if if I see something that looks like an anomaly, um, uh, then I compare it with all the other uh, individuals within that species to find out, you know, what do they all have in common, and what is an anomaly within within a single one. And that, like that's hard to probably hard to picture when it comes to like a Canada goose. Um, but basically, all, what I'm tra- just trying to do is I'm trying to notice things. Uh, that they all have in common that probably someone else didn't notice. Uh, Anything I can that, that someone overlooked or took for granted. And maybe an easier way to explain that would be, um, I was going to say like a chum, the market, the markings on a chum salmon, but not too many people are super familiar with that. But let's take a largemouth bass, for example. And if you look at a largemouth bass and there's like, um, there's like a horizontal lateral, um, uh, markings along right. the side, about the middle of the body of a largemouth. Yeah, so everybody knows that, and you might think, well, those are just really random, um, and for the most part, they are random. But if you pulled out pictures of a hundred different largemouth bass, all of a sudden you would see that when you get like to the caudal pinnacle area, that the last like four inches before it gets to the tail. That that all those markings are darker there than they are anywhere else on the body, and they're also more connected there than than anywhere else on the body. And there's also not a, um, there's not as much you know there's there's more like a uh, more like a, a pretty straight top and bottom line. And if you didn't notice, if you didn't if you just pulled up one picture of a largemouth bass, you would just you wouldn't notice that. So you'd have to look at pictures of at least twenty, and then you'd notice that. That stripe also continues continues into the tail, and and that some of the other stripes or uh, markings in the middle, you know, are like more diamond shaped, and then and there's just things like that that, you know, that I, I kind of feel like are super super important to, to really get to really get right, and you know things like the shape of a chin strap um, on a Canada goose, and and or the fact that the the, you know, on the on the um, there's are certain areas that You know get darker as they get towards the the rear edge you know like the side pockets and just things like that and i just try to get that stuff just as accurate as possible and like um i'm just you know i make fish fish replicas and that fish replicas have taught me a lot and sculpt you know sculptures taught me a lot and uh, i'm just really um i'm just really into trying to you know trying to imitate uh, and emulate nature and stuff like that now i'm even you know taking that into like fly tying and and that kind of stuff, um, and I just really just really dig dig that sort of stuff. So then I just start about and do the sculpture, and I get that sculpture just as absolutely as accurate as possible. And then I put a texture on it that 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 we need. like the 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 texture isn't always deadly accurate, but it's the texture that we need to make it to give us the finish that we need. and then uh, and then on the paint, you know we just use this um, this paint that's taken us a long time to develop and um and we work out the colors and on the colors for the most part we just try to be deadly accurate but there's a few there's a few places in the colors where we have to exaggerate the colors because because of the loss the loss of hue over distance when it's painted on plastic and so we have to make up for that um in certain areas and then uh and then of course you know we we try not to paint anything, you know, bright, bright white. Uh, we try not to paint any cool, cool colors, cool, cool blacks or cool whites, and uh, that has helped us, helped us quite
0: a bit. Awesome. So once the carving, then you paint, and then, then it goes to making the mold.
1: <clears throat> well, the, so the sculpture is first, and that gets done, and then and then we make molds, and then we cast parts. And then from those parts we 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 paint them. And we'll you know to we'll, to work out the the first paint job. Um, we'll make you know several dozen parts and work out the paint job until until we're really happy with the paint job. And in some cases we'll test uh, we'll test test the paint job um, you know on animals to see which <coughs> major versions um, of a paint job and then see which which one gives us the reaction that we're looking for um, if we're not a hundred percent sure. But when it comes to things like Canada geese, you know, we've kind of done that for so long that we kind of, we kind of know if we were to make a new Canada goose right now, we would, we would know pretty much how we need to paint it for it to be really effective.
0: Exactly. Now your Canada geese, I'm telling you that just, like I said, we've talked to the spot on the most realistic, the coloring, you fit all that. I would think because I've been using them for so years and ever and you, you always seem to you know well this is it and then you come out with another product you always seem to to surprise us and everything but i i gotta imagine when i look at when i sit in my turkey blind and i'm looking at that amazing decoy and i take video of it and it's like i could get away with telling people that's a strutter in my spread but with all the colors and the hues and and the different things that turkey has just got to be i can't imagine The process of what a wild turkey which or the uh, turkey decoy goes through yeah
1: the yeah that that was a hard hard process um to to go through to end up with i mean in some ways turkeys are nice because they don't have to be dead 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 flat and we have a we have a spectrometer um and we can that can measure the reflection of of a freshly killed bird and and also of a decoy, um, and in the case of a turkey, turkeys actually have some some reflection. I mean, there's parts there's parts of a turkey, especially the hen, that are pretty darn flat, um, but for the most part, turkeys could there's there's more there's more margin for error on a turkey when it comes to the reflection than there is for a goose, for example. But getting some of the you know getting some of the shimmers and metallics and pearlescent colors um to look to look right and look good and look natural and then also um be natural enough like and there is certain colors that you could paint on any decoy that will look absolutely perfect to to us to humans and and then you take them out the field and test them and they just absolutely repel birds and that that part is just weird, and it's just a part of the, it's a, just a part of the, the business that we just have to accept, and it's it's why we we bought our, our spectrometer, um, and that part just just some of it will probably never completely understand, but you know birds birds can see in a spectrum of colors that humans can't, and so there's just certain things that birds can see that we can't, and so we just don't, you know. Uh, we just have to do a lot of experimentation to to make sure we get that right. and there's there's also, I mean I hate to say it, but there's also a lot of decoys on the market right now that that we've tested that just don't have a very good reflection. and they might look really, really good, especially in the waterfowl industry, both, both ducks and geese. There's a lot of decoys that look really, really good and then people maybe can't figure out why they're not working as good as they think or in some cases don't work. You know very well at all, and a lot of that has to has to do with that. And then not to get too far into the weeds, and I know birds can I'm... actually see a, a whole set of colors that humans can't. So there's been some really crazy studies done. And like for example, like there's 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 two subspecies of songbirds that have overlapping territory, and to humans they look absolutely identical, and there's there's almost no hybridization between those those two birds there's almost no interbreeding they, each subspecies always breeds with its subspecies and humans c- could not figure that out like how in the world is that happening well with a spectrometer you look at those birds underneath one and and one of them has like a completely different color like on a speculum patch or you know some some group of feathers uh, and so, to the birds, in the bird's eyes, they do. There is something that just completely defines them and makes them, uh, you know, be able to differentiate each other. But to humans, we can't see that. And and there's a lot of that that applies, even to waterfowl, and especially ducks, where where males are brightly colored to attract a female, um, and females are are more camo. Um, but even with monochromatic chromatic birds like a snow goose or a canada goose uh you know there's there's subtle things at least in the finish that that in the reflection that we can that we can't see and birds can and that's that's why like someone might struggle they'll take a white tyvek sheet and pull it over them or or wear a tyvek suit uh for goose hunting and and they'll can't figure out why it's just like repelling um you know repelling snows and then you find out that the snows can actually that actually Shows a completely different uh, snows than what than what we see. We just see white. Um, and, and I'm and I'm not picking on Tyvek. That's
0: just just an, just a, an example. Yeah. Just a- well, Dave, when you and I when I met you guys at the Oregon Waterfall Festival probably three four years ago, we had a I don't know if you remember we had a good extensive talk. And you were a hundred percent. And uh, there's three things to to make color. It takes the the object. It takes the observer. But then it takes the light source. You know, we hunt ducks, geese, everything, everything, the turkeys, the deer, everything is done outside. And I, I've i been pretty advocate, uh, and I spoke out about uh, so many people were arguing and over about uh, the UV and some companies that would, you know, that everything, we, we use special UV paint, but I haven't shot a goose yet under blacklight. And it's about, mm-hmm. it's trying to get that reflectance of the real bird, and you said that, turkeys have a gloss to them, it sometimes look like they're wet, even ducks and geese can have a little bit, you know, in the right light source. And I think you that was one of the things, you know, your positions, your body positions, everything were always spot on. And- I don't need 10 different positions or 20 different positions, I need three or four solid realistic uh, contentment positions, but you need that that reflection, that light, I think um, early in the season when you said, you know, with silhouettes and stuff like that, they worked good early in the season. But as we got going on, you know, it got tougher. Of course, in my opinion, the dumb geese or the dumb birds died off. And uh, you start, you know, they're dead. So they educate, and I've noticed it here, especially after Christmas. It's almost like they're unkillable. I mean, it's just like the switch comes on and they all got master degrees. It was going back with less decoys, less people hiding, doing my hide, less calling. But my calling had to be perfect. It had to be a, a finesse type of calling. Basically, you know, cluck and moan and, and as realistic as I can. And we started pulling. We weren't pulling the big flocks in, but we could pull start to where we could start pulling birds in. And... um but you're 100% right on the coloring, and I'll I'll let you elaborate, Brad. Here. Oh, I was
2: just going to say you guys both made some really great observations there. Um, but one one thing I would like to make note of is um, just how important the the poses themselves are. And with geese, um, you know, you guys had, had kind of briefly mentioned that you're really just looking for you know a handful of different more or less relaxed poses, but it's a little different when you're talking about turkeys and and deer,
0: Yeah,
2: where you're really trying to, you know, there's so much nonverbal communication with deer and turkeys. And you have to remember, you know, they're approaching from the ground level. They're not coming in up high and circling. They're coming in cautiously low and they're taking their time um, on their approach. And so, um, when it comes to those two species in particular, um, the body language is everything. You know, I guess I'd say a great example of that would be um, our posturing buck decoy. You know, it's really the only decoy out there uh, of its kind, and Dave just nailed it. You know, when he, he made this, you know, mediocre-sized buck that's bristled up and... You know, he's he's challenging an approaching buck, and it, the body language is what gets the reaction from the deer. And it's so exciting to watch. You know, it's it's something where you know there's a lot of deer decoys on the market that just you know roughly look like the deer. You know, I mean, kind of the idea is a buck will see this decoy and approach it and get to within range, and then you know you'll take your shot. But what's really, really exciting about decoying um, to us is, is to, you know, completely fool the animal all the way in to the point to where it actually engages your decoy. It's so convinced that it's the real deal that, you know, it comes in and it just plows right over your decoy. And that is so cool to watch. Even if you don't get to take the shot, it was worth the experience. You know, there's just nothing as exciting as that, right there. And it's the same with the turkeys, you know, and we have a variety, and we probably have eight or nine different turkey poses and they all serve their own purpose. You know, the feeding hen is, is you know, a symbol of confidence to approaching birds, um, you know, a strutter decoy, again, is kind of like a posturing buck of the turkey world. He's challenging, um, you know, other gobblers. And, um, you know, um, you've got your mating hen decoy, for example, is one of my favorites uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a very contented hen that, you know, unlike some of the other poses out there, um, a mating hen is a decoy that once a gobbler sees it, he kind of recognizes that it's not going to come to him. You know, he has to come to her. And a lot of times he comes in and he's so focused that he'll oftentimes climb on top of the decoy. And once he's mounted, you know, he's not going anywhere. And it, it gives you an opportunity to really calm your nerves down. I mean, we've all been there before. When you have a close encounter, you know, with a turkey, um, it's really easy to, I guess, more lack of a better term, you know, really lose your shit, I guess I would say. You right. so get so excited that... You know, you, you, you rush your shot, you make a poor shot, um, but with a, with a mating hen, if you can just let the bird get comfortable on top of the decoy and really, you know, take the time to focus, take a deep breath, um, you know, for me, I, I just, I get so worked up sometimes. I like the bow hunt, um, but that is, that's one of my favorite poses right there to uh, use when I'm when adult, I mean, and it's great when you take kids out too, you know, because they get really excited. And if you can kind of coach them through, um, you know, the, the birds approach and say, you know, okay, wait, just let him, let him get to the decoy, let him climb on top of the decoy. And then, you know, you can, at that point, you can assure the, you know, your shooter that the bird's not going anywhere. So you just shoot when you feel comfortable.
0: Yeah. Talking about your turkey, in my experience, you know, been I've had great success. <laughs> Use them through the years, but I will tell you that um, through filming and, and then watching them, and here in Iowa, that we've we've uh I kind of pick a couple birds that I want to hunt and then I go after them, so it gives me the opportunity to watch quite a few of the of toms that come in and it uh, just to see their reaction and stuff. And so I'm out there with myself, saw 14 gobblers and three different fights, and I had Strutter out there, I had hens with him. I had all the, they didn't want anything to do with hens they didn't want anything to do with. they were it was a pecking order and any time that was different that walked it they would just walk over and slam them and and they're like i said i watched seven gobblers go at it once it was just and this was all 40 of course i'm hunting with a bow and a Decap, broadhead, and I couldn't shoot past 20. Uh, If I could have filmed, but at that four season, they're wanting that 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 beat the crap of the Tom and who's going to be the standing Tom. What I'd notice that when the Toms would come out, they'd sit there and stare at him. I would hit the call. All he'd have to do was just puff, start to puff a little bit. And it was on like Donkey Kong. They would take off and run at him. I saw a difference. And using your posturing, Jake, he just can't resist that where, That first puffing up and, and wanting to come over. And we filmed with the hens, and I've, I've always been kind of the guy that I've not been a, a big hen decoy guy because I always hunted the wood edges and, and used the Jake deck. act like look, maybe like he's holding the hen inside and bring the tom over. But we started noticing using the laying hen – that we've had some, I call them, they were the boss hens that would come in and ignore the top, you know, ignore my decoy, which was I had behind the hen, but they'd go to that laying hen and just peck the shit out of his head, out of her head, just boom, boom, and, and sit there, and then she'd walk, walk away, come back, and peck at the head of that laying hen again. And so I started using my feeding hen over my laying hen and putting the shake behind it and it's been great. Yeah, that's
2: one of the best That's one of the best reasons to use hen decoys. You know, I mean, a lot of times, especially early in the season out here, um, the gobblers are really hand up. And oftentimes you have to bring the hens in in order to get an opportunity at a gobbler. And there's no better way to do that um, than with some aggressive calling and a hen decoy. And if you can get her talking and – and you can get her into a position where she can see their hen decoy or hen decoys, um, a lot of times she's, she's going to come in, she'll be pissed off, and she's going to have him right in tow. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've I've pulled that one off and felt like if I only had a gobbler decoy out, you know, I may not have ended up getting an opportunity at that particular bird.
0: Absolutely agree. Let me... Uh... For listeners out there, who, I mean, we have a lot of bow. Usually, your turkey hunters, waterfowl, but turkey hunters and bow hunters, and if they bow hunt turkey, they love to bow hunt deer. And uh, on your on your deer decoy, you know, one of the things that I noticed using past decoys, um, that buck had to be in the right temperament. We used to take one antler off, and I found that if you did that, you had more insub- insubordinate bucks that would come in and challenge. But the does and fawns really never had much to do with it. And one of the things since I've been using your buck decoy, I've tried one horn on and the horn off. And even though it's in a, you know, he's posh, I've noticed that. uh, And I know you guys have seen some of my video clips, but the uh, does and fawns would come out and feed, and they'll look at him coming in, but come out and feed actually. And I've had, of course, the button bucks are the most curious, but they would sit there and almost approach him. And then walk away, but they the deer would, the does would feed 10 to 15 yards, you know, out in the field with my decoy. And yeah. the young bucks or an old bucks both seem to come in. And I, I contribute that to the realism, you know, I uh, scent is very important because once they get downwind and whatever you have, no matter what decoy you have, it's going to be over. But if you correlate that with the right scent, I'm telling you that it just, it's a relaxing agent. For the does and fawns to feed near me so what tips would you have for you know for the guys getting started into decoys uh in their whitetail strategy uh,
1: well i would say first yeah i, I couldn't agree more with that um uh, with that observation about that about the buck decoy and and um i've noticed the same thing like i i've hunted in wisconsin quite a quite a bit with that decoy and we have friends uh that have property in buffalo county wisconsin and just just love hunting like our friend Paul he just he he used to go and and hunt on his property you know once in the early season and once in the late in the late season and uh for like a a week and now he just like takes the entire late season off and just hunts over the decoy and just loves to watch the interaction and and he's noticed the same thing and I've noticed that too it's just uh like some some even young bucks uh they just know that they're not either going to challenge it or be, or be, you know, uh, ran off. And so young, young bucks will come in and, and just feed alongside it and doze too. And that's a really good thing. Like in some cases with doe decoys, uh, with some of the doe decoys that I've used, um, other brands, we don't have a doe decoy uh, yet, but, um, you know, it's, it's more like the hen turkey situation where it's not so much about pecking order, but just, you know uh, a, a doe decoy can get kind of ran off by by a real doe and that's not necessarily a good thing in hunting in that in that case but um i think a lot of that has to do with a lot of the decoys that are on the market right now are in a really like alert uh alarmed position like the ears are forward and the legs are spread out and splayed out and it just looks like like you know this deer is just you know seeing seeing something that's it's not uh you know not cool with and just uh, it's just like frozen and i think that that puts off a lot of gear and even though ours is in a kind of a posturing position um it's it's natural and the only um deer that really really come down and challenge it are are um you know like decent size decent sized bucks and other and bucks that are a little bit smaller still come down and like interact with it um but also and i want to say i need to bring this up every time we talk about that pose that pose has been really really great and the funny thing about that pose is um the idea for that pose came from randy Birdsong, song and i think it's important to, to point that out every time and what's crazy is, is you know i think we we kind of were getting these these emails and i want to say it was from like don and candy kiski um whitetail freaks and they were telling us to, that this is the pose that we need to make, and and um, tell me if I got this wrong, Brad. But this is kind of how I remember it. And then a lot of that information was coming from Randy Birdsong. And so, you know, when we were done with the pose, I mean, I I like agreed completely, and I thought it was a great idea. And I started doing the research, and I was like, yeah, this is a really never, good idea. I mean, I never got to meet Randy Birdsong. I, you know, we tried to look him up to to give him a decoy when we were done, and we couldn't find him. And I, Randy Birdsong was the one who really, you know, came up with that idea for that pose and and really prompted us to do it, even though it was kind of through, through some other people. But as far as tips go, I, I want to say probably the, you know, the the most successful uh, method has been to put the decoy, you know, kind of quartering toward, towards you so that, so that the buck, you know, swings around and gives you a really good shot. But, you know, it's funny how that works. It's, you can have that buck in almost any position, and in facing any direction. And sometimes it's really going to work for you, but there's still going to be sometimes when a buck just stays stays out of range, and just and then just charges the decoy, crashes it super hard, and then runs off, and then and then, and then is it, out of range again. And that, that that part of the game, it does happen, um, but most of the time, if you have a Quartering towards you, the, the other buck, the real buck, will be posturing, and he'll come in really, really slow, and li- you know, licking his lips like crazy, and eyeballs rolling in his, rolling back in his head. And uh, one of the things that you know hunters need to know is you can't necessarily grunt at that point and stop him, right? Um, because they so fixed on the decoy that that they that's not really paying attention, and so. You sometimes have to take, luckily, a, a slow walk, but it is still a moving target, and you, you do kind of have to um, keep keep that in mind, but it's usually on the outside bend of the deer's body and cor- slightly quartering away, so it does give you a really good shot, and you can also put that decoy pretty dang close. You can set yourself up for a pretty a pretty close shot because you don't have any problem getting your bow drawn, and if you make a little bit of noise or something like that, it's just Just really, it's nothing like a big mature white-tailed buck walking down a trail, where you you know have to be absolutely perfectly quiet. You can get get away with a little bit
0: more. I'll tell you what I found here in Iowa that, and it's that it was by my mistake, um, but um, that's one of the beauties of here because we get to see a lot of bucks and observe, and so you're passing up bucks. And but uh, I uh, I'm a big on the sense, and I would you know, always spray my uh, decoy down with a scent killer, but I'd always used uh, on the nose and the ass. That was the two places it seemed that, you know, whether a mature or insubordinate buck might approach is, you know, either those two, one of those two ends, the front or the back. And um, I thought one heck I was trying, going to try it one day. I got looking at it and it was a buck bomb, had their buck urine, bucks. it was a spray. And uh, I remember I took it to the field, well, I'm going to try this thing. And I I set the decoy out and and I set the sprayed the buck bomb a little bit on the decoy, but I sprayed it around the corn and uh, got up my tree stand and I looked down like, hey, what an idiot! I can't shoot here, so I had to climb back down, move the decoy. But the the first buck that came in that night, a three-year-old buck, he came slowly in and kept slowly, and so he's using his eyes and he's trying. In my head, I'm thinking he's trying to figure out who the hell this guy is. Who is? I haven't seen this guy. You know, he said, maybe I can smell him. Right. And he he came around and he circled downwind of him. And he came and he got to the spot of which was about I would say ten steps away from where I originally had the decoy. So if you can imagine, all the buck bomb was on the ground. That buck hit that buck bomb and looked and then and looked at that decoy, and he started taking his rack and just tearing the crap out of the corn stalks and rubbing his face, uh-huh. in and pulling the corn stalks, and rubbing it, and of course this light bulb's going up, and I said, wow, I could have shot this buck a dozen times, and so what I started doing, and it's worked with that combination with me, um, using James Valley scents, and I imagine any good scent that we, that you had that had a good deer, and then I like to use buck, whether it's a buck urine and something to do with associated, I don't use dough and heat too much, but um, fact, not at all. But anyway, it was, I used the, uh, I started using, setting my decoy and I always did the quarter and to me, but I was always worried that, uh, you know, if you're sitting there trying to film and I get a good buck comes in and, you know, and all of a sudden he hits in charge it hits that decoy, it's, it's, it's over, you know, he's going to go out there. So I started taking that buck bomb and strategically when I'd set that decoy out there, descent. I- spray and and then i would put the my james i put the buck lure on his nose and on his ass and and then but then i would take my buck bomb spray and i would go to either side of the decoy probably four to five steps from him and i would spray my bucks piss on the ground I just didn't if i'm going to get that deer to, to stop, stop i want him to stop where i can put an arrow i don't want him court or straight onto me and um stopping and then looking and looking and all of a sudden something isn't right and peel out yeah, of there buck spray would use to stop that deer before charging the decoy. I was right. conditioning him to stop him. No,
1: yeah, That's a, that's a great idea. Yeah. And that, I mean, and I, I agree with you too. I'm, I'm not too much into doing, doing heat scent. And just, just mostly because I, you know, I think a lot of it is, it's like if there, if there really was a great way to make, you know, a really accurate doin heat scent then it would be so deadly that you know there wouldn't be any deer deer left, you know, and then uh, and so um, you know just because like when a does in heat and and you know there's just only a short period of time there, and like the chances of being able to collect urine at that moment and it still be fresh and still be you know effective, you know months later sitting on the shelf and all that stuff. And I know there's synthetic versions and stuff like that, but I just like some of that. It's like I don't want to get too far into you know. Um, into some of that stuff, it's like sometimes you're better off just to be pretty darn natural and and yeah. and also
0: realistic. Um, yeah. Be
1: able to where if you do leave scent, if you do leave scent somewhere, it's not going to freak out deer and it's not going to also not going to attract every buck in the area to that spot that you hunted yesterday. You know what I mean?
0: Right. Yep. And you know that that's a good point. Oh, talking about the scent of, of uh, you know we, a lot of people worry. I'd really be honest. I don't worry about my hands a whole lot. Um, I've handled. Then after I go to spray everything, I had had one deer, but I do worry about more than my hands. I worry about my boots. Because when I'm walking and then I'm walking out around that deer, you know, I'm, we're worried about that we're actually touching that. And hopefully before that deer gets here, I put an arrow. But if I'm a ways and, and we're walking in and that deer crosses my boot trail, it could be you know, enough to disrupt a mature deer who's got a little bit on the ball saying, whoa, this is fresh. This is very strong human scent. You know, I'm, I'm going to back out of here. So I've always tried to cover my boot scent more than I do my hand scent when I'm setting my decoys.
1: Yeah. yeah, I hunt a lot of Columbia blacktails and, and that's something that, you know, like blacktail hunters over here, they're just, they always say like how blacktails are the hardest deer and like, you know, they watch TV shows of whitetail hunting and they, they think that whitetails are so easy and the thing is like, I hunt both can have hunted bowls pretty extensively. Just, I'll just set the record straight right now. Like, like whitetails are so much more sensitive to human scent and human encroachment, and the things that you're talking about right now, George, that's 100%. I agree with that 100%. Like um, that, just you could have rubber boots on that you have super, super, super clean, and you've got them sprayed down, and or, or not sprayed down in case the spray itself, you know, make is a, a natural scent, and just walking, just walking uh, across a trail, is that could be enough to make a white tail. A white-tailed deer stop, and the, the, their ability to smell is unbelievable, and that has happened a little bit with white-tails, but, I mean, with black-tails, but I will tell you right now that you can get away with murder um, when it comes to black-tails compared to, compared to white-tails. White-tails are, they are the absolute king when it comes to um, you having to really, really have, you know, all your ducks in a row going to be every super, super, super clean, and you could rarely, rarely even sit the same stand twice, and where with blacktails you could sit in the same stand for a week. And I'm not saying the blacktails are are easy by any means. the but the biggest problem with blacktails is just that they are so 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 nocturnal. Um, but man, when it comes to that kind of stuff that you're talking about, like I think there's a lot of blacktail hunters that just can't comprehend just how sensitive whitetails are um, to human scent.
0: Do you use your uh, white tail decoy for black tails or no? We have
1: we have a black tail version of it. It's okay. the same it's the same decoy, but we have a paint a painted version of it that's painted like a black tail.
0: All right, that's cool. Well, let me tell you, coming to waterfowl, if you are a new guy wanting to get in, and he says, "Hey," and I've been this. I it's not to me, especially on the average uh, goose hunter who you know we have the early season and then we got october and you're going to have still have local birds you might start getting some migration your molt migrators still with you know going to be giants and and lessers are going to come later in the season but so i'm a new guy and i want to get started and and i want to be a goose hunter this year and i want to have a dsd setup but you know i got to get the best bang for my buck and what would you recommend if I were the guy who was going to order, what would you recommend for me as my first setup in a DSD, um, decoy setup?
2: Uh, well, you mentioned molt migrators, um, and giants. I'm assuming that whoever you're making this recommendation to is, is going to be targeting a lot of larger geese. And kind of one of our observations that we've made is that, um, large geese decoy best to large decoys and smaller geese will still decoy really well to large goose decoys, but it doesn't really uh, work as well the other way around. In other words, right. using a smaller goose decoy is not as effective on big geese as a big goose decoy is on smaller geese. So keeping in mind that you're on a limited budget and – you know you're you're really only looking for a small spread and maximizing your um, effectiveness with that small spread. I would get some large decoys. And first thing I would do is um, i would I would ask myself um, you know what look at the area where you're hunting. are you hunting predominantly you know smaller, smaller fields where visibility might not be as critical as they, you know some of the places in the, you know in the in the Midwest, the Dakotas, for example, um, where you're hunting, you know, large large expanses, you know, big big fields, um, and and in Canada is another good example, um, where you really want to maximize your visibility, and in those situations, I think you really can't beat our our giant decoys. Um, you really don't need many of them at all. It's, it's incredible how, you know, I, I feel like two dozen oftentimes looks like five dozen because um, they're a very large decoy and they're highly visible. Um, you know, I've, I've set mixed spreads before where I've only had a dozen or two uh, giant decoys and maybe a larger spread of lesser decoys or cackler decoys and you know you can go past the truck 500 yards away and look back at your spread and the only thing you can see are the giant decoys right and so um i'm a huge huge proponent of of our giant decoys uh for that reason because you just can't beat the visibility of them um, that's not to say that our honker decoys don't have their place one thing to keep in mind about our honkers <laughs> is that they are um, though they're smaller and they're more of a life-size uh, honker, um, they're, they're going to be smaller than a giant. They're probably, what would you say, Dave, about a eight to ten pound goose or, or honkers. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they're also very heavily textured, and so um, they it really repel moisture well. You know, So when they're when they're wet, they're they're not reflecting. That's not to say that um, our giant decoys shine horribly bad. They dry off quickly, um, but they're not as flat when wet as as our honker decoys are. If I were in a semi-arid climate, I wouldn't even hesitate one bit to start um, with our giants. And you really don't need a whole lot of them. Um, You could get 16 20 24 of our giant decoys and another thing that i would recommend is in starting with a a small spread like that another great way that you can maximize your visibility is by going with um, maybe more uprights than you traditionally would would go with because they're tall and their chest is exposed um you know it's it's facing up whereas the feeders are are facing down And and so you're going to get greater visibility with the uprights. And it's important to note to people that just because um, the the decoy is in an upright posture, it doesn't mean that it's alarmed. You know, these are really relaxed poses. And when you observe geese, especially larger geese, um, they're not always all feeding or even mostly feeding. Um, And so I think a lot of hunters kind of look too far into the whole ratio thing and think, oh, I have to have, you know, two-thirds or three-quarters of my spread needs to be feeders. You know, there was um, a demonstration Dave and I made, I don't know, 20 years ago, where we actually hunted over uh, a dozen of our giant geese, and they were all upright. And the geese finished them just the same as if they had been all feeders or any kind of combination in between. What's most important is that the birds believe that they're the real deal you know not you know they don't they don't care so much about the ratio of poses
0: you know so, it's uh in a nutshell i
2: guess to, to summarize i would say a small spread of our giant decoys with
0: probably at least half of a i agree with that when i hunted there in michigan and and uh, around the area and around the hunt clubs and stuff and we had a lot of competition mm-hmm. you know we had a lot of birds but we had a lot of competition and people fighting for fields and and, and I don't know social media is it that I mean but it a lot of the goose hunters they young guys they like to hunt in big groups they like to ha- unload all their trailers and put everything out there and, and then scream all day long in the calls and I had great success you know there was days that I used more decoys and there's days I probably used less but I, on average I had great success through the year using 18 um, Canada decoys and now my spread was totally different in the winter and then what it was in in the early fall but um, you know we were blessed like I said to live with the birds and we had birds dumped in at the hunt club that uh, my neighbor was a, a our DNR biologist of a waterfowl and you know so I was a part of a lot of the trappings and and uh, banding and a lot of the geese, the the goslings and all that stuff got dumped in in our the hunt clubs behind us. And then it was nice having all these geese. They'd be in your backyard and next thing you know, I'd see my dog walk around the yard with a, a gosling in his mouth that wandered into the yard, but it helped attract other birds. And so it gave me a chance to do a lot of studying and watching on these birds. And, and I think some of that studying and being seasonal, what I'm saying is that I choose to use more body position throughout the season, not as much as one hunt. You know, they're here for one thing, they're here to to eat. And so we did a lot of filming of of geese in the early season, geese that were, that uh, hadn't seen a hunting season yet. And and our early goose population, I think the DNR, it used used to be like 63% of your early goose population was juvenile geese. And so we had a lot of geese that got dumped in there, didn't have a lot of adults with them, but, what I'm trying to say is I would use a different spread, and and I've done this in New York City, I've done it in Ohio, Michigan, but in Iowa, and I think learning and watching these body positions what's changed. When I came out here, we, I mean it's it's in the early season, it's 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 a easy, and it's a blast. And sitting out there, and I don't have to be near as cautious, and you can get away with that a lot more. We still practice on concealment and move our spots. But man, when I'm telling you, once after Christmas, and we get all these birds piled in here, and you're thinking then this is going to be easy, and these birds act like you are totally invisible, and because they've, it's it, it's a redundant they have been conditioned they they when they come over those trees and I, i'm talking about we'll watch a field that had 5000 canadas in it and, I was, and it's right across the road and, and they're ignoring you and you know they fed here and it's like all right tomorrow and that's and one of the things that's made it successful is that i've only you never hunt with big groups, and I've just always been, I like smaller group of guys. I like to be able to control the, the scene. I want to know who's going to, you know, everybody's not going to shoot until one person calls it, and now everybody's blowing their calls. We're going to work strategically here. It's safety, but it's so much easier to conceal yourself, and um, we were doing all that, and these geese were just totally ignoring and then piling the field that you were in the day before. So you go into that field the next day, and they would come over and as soon as they hit those trees, they would break, I couldn't pull a goose, and then they fly past you back to the field you were the day before. And I sat there and went back to what my old strategy was, and what I always preach is trying to be natural, but late season, you know what made a difference here was putting sleepers and some feeders, not a whole bunch, and my 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 sentries were uh, strategic decoys that I put in. And but I'm telling you, the majority was was sleep. And I put the sleepers and feeders behind me, and it made the difference. You looked out there, and I start I took away the active decoys, and the active decoys worked great in the early season. But at this time, you know, it's like we're playing uh, – this is almost like the World Series. We're in the big leagues now, and these geese have – they've we've gone through the season, and these guys are honed in. They're, they're pretty solid on and, and everything, what they will accept and won't accept. And it's when I started going to the sleepers and the feeders, and, and not as much decoy is what I'm saying. I don't have a lot of decoys, and then doing the strategic calling, the clucking and moaning, and uh, it, it just – it, it wasn't the success you had in the early season, but it made a difference when we weren't having any success at all, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah, yeah
1: that, that totally makes sense. But,
2: you know, there's a lot of real benefits to using or decoys, and one reason that really sticks out to me is that the lack of movement in a small spread of decoys is far uh, less apparent than it is In a larger spread because it doesn't matter how how hard we try no one has ever replicated the actual natural movement of a goose in a decoy it's just i mean it's almost impossible you know you have a rigid yeah hard plastic decoy um and and so anytime you can you can emulate um a flock of birds it's not really going to be moving very much and sleepers is great for that you know um then i i think you can really make it you know that much more difficult for incoming approaching geese to notice that lack of of motion you know of course with just fewer birds to begin with there's going to be less movement on top of that but also um you know, you were talking about concealment before, and that's also really, really important. And I think it's important to know with pressure geeks especially, it doesn't matter how good your decoys are. If you can't hide, it, I mean, you might it's as well over. just throw in the towel because um, the best decoys in the world aren't going to make up for a poor hide. And so um, there are some limitations that you have to keep in mind when you are using a smaller decoy spread um you know a lot of times guys will hide in their in their spread when they've got 20 dozen out and it's a lot easier for you to blend into a large spread than it is when you have 18 out. Um, but you know our advice i would say would be to um you know really evaluate your hide if you're you know if you're in a corn stubble field for example maybe you could get away with being in your decoys or closer to your decoys but you know, if you are if they're hunting a winter wheat field, um, that's not going to happen on pressure keys especially. So you need to look for you know alternatives. Find another place to hide, whether that's an edge or um, you know a, a pile of brush out in the middle of the field, or somewhere where you can you can get into some taller cover with your blind, and then get your. Don't be afraid to get your decoys out in front of you. You know, twenty to 30 yards um think, in another benefit to using a smaller spread is it's a lot easier to control where the keys go you know so i mean keep, keep that in mind if you're in 20 dozen decoys even if you're hidden in them you're going to have decoys 40 50 yards away from you um but you can be on an edge for example with 18 decoys and your furthest decoy is still within 40 yards
0: I agree with that. You yeah. know, there's uh, that's one of the things that I when I'm giving advice or doing a seminar, I basically say as a goose hunter, there's three criteria criteria I want to learn to master. And majority I would say that uh, You got the two types. You got one guy who never practices calling, and it's never been. He's I just hunt with guys who can call, and then you got the guys who it's all about calling. They want to blow their contest routine out in the field, and they like to hear it, and they want to impress their buddies, and they think the geese want to hear it. And so he's learned to he's learned to run a call, but he hasn't learned to read geese. So one of the things I talk about, you learned it. You got to be a master of concealment, number one. Number two, learn how to master your spread near your concealment. Learn how to master by using the winds and looking, using the land terrain, whether it's a rise or slope. It's out in that field that will help break a shadow. I would rather pull to a peninsula, any type of cover uh, considered my concealment, and s- before setting in the exact spot they fed the night before. I mean that is, it's a good idea, but just like you guys were talking about, if I'm hunting where I don't have it, where I'm hiding can't hide the blinds, then I'm just going to bump those and push those geese and, and maybe to another spot to another party. And then the third is learning to be able to call, being able to read the, and be able to give realistic call, and the timing of your calling. Once you met, you know, when I killed geese, did I master all three or did I just have the decoys work and we shot them at 40 yards? You know, the thing to me is, is trying to get all three criterias to work at the same time.
1: So I, I add to that, George. Um, I I agree with that 100. percent And one of the, one of the things that's super super important about that in my in my mind is if you if you you come to the field and you find a bunch of geese, you're gonna and you're gonna set up the next day. And um, if there's a really good hide where all the geese are, then that's a no brainer. That's, that's going to be super easy and stuff. But that almost never never happens. That's like trying to find the perfect you know tree. Uh, for you know, for deer hunting. Uh, there's just never one right where you need one. But um, you know, your, your choice, you have two choices basically at that point. One is to pick a spot that's not as good but has a really good hide and, and try to pull the birds over to you. And the other one is to be right on the X but don't hide very well. And I think a lot of people choose the X and they don't hide very well and it doesn't work out. But the, the important thing is, is if it doesn't work out and you set up on the X, you've just educated those birds and you've exposed yourself and you've exposed the boogeyman and you've exposed the hide. But if, meanwhile, if you go to a part of the field where there is a really good hide and it doesn't work out, you just can't pull the birds over, then you, you haven't educated anything. And you can, you can try again the next day or whatever you, need, whatever you need to do. And you can do that. That's a sustainable method. Uh, so you can do that all throughout the season, year after year after year and not educate birds. It's the same thing with not shooting into big, large, large flo- flocks or waiting for smaller groups to come in whenever possible. And those are like sustainable practices.
0: You know, David, it, it was a few years back, but we was up to uh, an Ontario border, Ontario and in, in Quebec. And a good friend of mine uh, was a dog trainer, but he was also on our staff and he ran an outfitting up there at the St. Lawrence river. We went up there one year spent three or four days to film with him. And, probably one of the best honker hunting i've ever seen i mean i remember the 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 mount of honkers that we saw up there and and they weren't that educated you wouldn't think and, and for me to get up there and i thought wow this is awesome but what i really respected that, that he did we could have went out in the middle of the field and set up all our our layout blinds and stuff like that and tried to film but i said how do you want to run this and he says i'll tell you what i do he says i use all the fence rows i use the the peninsulas i use every jet point everything i can use uh to, to conceal to hunt those geese until I can't kill them from there anymore once I'm forced to leave that my cover then I'll move to the middle of the field and work on covering so the geese get a different adjustment or you know seeing and granted he's he's in the northern part so the geese are seeing him before they see others but I always thought that was a great uh, recommendation, a great advice that, you know, use the cover until the cover doesn't work, until the geese won't come to the fence rows, or until I can't kill them from the, they, they sway away from it. Then we move out. And it, it's a different attitude. What I see with a lot of the hunters today is just they get all their buddies, all the truck decoys out in the middle of the field, burn it good, get a great pitcher, and then struggle the rest of the early season. But Yeah, Totally. Well, guys, I appreciate this uh, tremendously. I hope our viewers and listeners out there, uh, I learned a ton, and, and there's great advice and, and everything else, and I appreciate it. One quick thing. Is there anything new that might be coming out with DSD, or is that kind of silent?
1: Go ahead, Brad?
0: <laughs> and we're not talking about transgendering, Brad. We're not talking about transgendering. We're talking about decoys.
2: <laughs> oh, well, that's no fun. No, <laughs> um, so we're uh, we've been working on a new uh, floater decoy. Um, it, it's a large Canada goose. It's it's roughly comparable size wise to our giant, um, and and it's. Hard to say exactly when it will be available. Uh, it could possibly be released uh, this, this coming season. We're still working out some bugs on it. Um, we're optimistic that we'll have it this season, but the way things have been the last few years, it's really difficult to say. Um, but we're, we're really excited about this one and, and looking forward to its release. Uh, there's There's three different poses, and it's a one-piece.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I think I think people
2: will really
0: like it. Trust me, I know what it's like when in your head you got the vision and you've done it and then you got to bring it to life. And whatever you think the date is, you need to add 20 to 40% more because it it always there's always things that float in that you just never foresee, but that is really cool. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you guys coming on, taking the time. And thank you for making the best product out there. And you know what, you, it's it's a product made by hunters who truly are have the passion for what they do and the quality and the passion of putting out a great product. We appreciate you guys. And that's about going to wrap it up this week, for this week's episode, folks. I hope you have enjoyed it as we is bringing it to you. Oh, Diane's Diane yeah, is stopping. Diane is board. stopping me. She said, "What we need to do, <laughs> said I need to get your." Uh... No, sorry. Hold on a second. On the thank you.
1: We don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> right? It might do better if you don't say our name. <laughs>
0: Well, folks, that's gonna wrap it up for this week's episode with Dave Smith, Brad Cochran of DSD Decoys. I appreciate guys, you spending your time, and and uh, I know what it's like being in our business ourselves. Time is money, and and uh, trying to make the uh, every minute of the day count, the best bang for your buck. And I appreciate it, you guys. I feel honored that you shared your time with us. And folks, I if you like this podcast, I ask you to please subscribe to it and uh, it's on all the different platforms you have any questions about the podcast or anything like that reach out to me through email or through social media and um, or you can reach me at george lynch hunter on facebook or instagram and you guys if people want to reach out to you and, and uh, talk to you about your products what's the best way for them to get a hold of you uh,
2: to get your questions answered directly you can look us up through social media We're on facebook and instagram and i believe we even have a twitter account but um i'm really not very involved in the social media side of things um so i can't say that for certain but we are on facebook and instagram dave smith decoys um mike callian he's very knowledgeable he's a die-hard hunter himself and he's really great at answering any questions that people have awesome and our website is dave they can check our products out
0: there There you go, folks. You want to see the best products in the industry. Go out there and check these guys out. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time, folks. And always remember, hunt safe, hunt smart, and may the good Lord be your guide.